This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode three. And in this episode, I'm talking to Vera Paki, who is Congolese, Kiwi, South African. Welcome, Vera. It's so freaking cool to have you on this podcast with me. Let's start by hearing your story. Take us all the way back in space and time with you. Gotta lay down the foundation. So I'm born to Congolese parents. I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I migrated to New Zealand in 2004. So already there's a lot of things going on. So coming from Congo, my parents, a place really ravaged with war, poverty. I mean... I, I, I always talk about Congo in this really detached way, mainly because any time I spent there, I can't remember it. And my connections to it is genuinely through headlines and CNN articles and all of these different things. And it feels really, it feels really interesting to describe a place that should be much more connected to you in that way through through this really westernized sensationalized lens i've i've always identified as congolese which is really interesting i feel like i knew i was congolese before i knew i was anything else my parents were really <laughs> heavy in it i don't know what would happen if like i went there and like put my two feet on the ground but i had always been surrounded by congolese food and music and languages it's definitely something that they had managed to create a mini version in west auckland for me which i really have always appreciated uh, you know, coming from South Africa, my parents were there for 20 years before I was born. So they came through apartheid, dealing with their own versions of racism, xenophobia, classism, all of the different things you can think of ended up in West Auckland. And we migrated split. So I came with my sister and my mom and my dad stayed back in South Africa. And he joined us around 10 years later. We went through the family reunification process, all of the things. So already just in like early 10 years of my life, heavily shaped by systems, institutions, in and out of government buildings, paperwork, bureaucracy, the whole, the whole deal. We started off in uh, social welfare, in the welfare housing, and, you know, been around different social workers and seeing the different systems. We started in the resettlement camps that they have out in Mangare before moving out to Mount Roskill, I do believe. And it's really interesting to talk about this portion of my life my upbringing because I feel like it has very little to do with me specifically it's really the story of my parents and how they kind of shuffle to build a stable foundation for their family in this really new place I often talk to friends or I used to at least a lot about the difficulties the like the corruption the patriarchy the racism the like all the sort of fraud democracy that we have um back home and I think I, without realizing probably myself, that actually all of those things were ever present for me, yet that's not, you know, that's not something that defined Kazakhstan for me. You you hit the nail on the head, right? So you end up talking about, I guess, the, the worst shades of your, your home place, opposed to kind of like highlighting all the good things. And almost, 
at least for myself, for my parents, there's, there's always a justification of why you're here. So when people are like, wow, you're, <laughs> well, easily, it's really, you're black. How, how, how are you here? It's the justification. Oh, well, back in my home country, it's like this, 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 this. So I ended up coming here. And it's almost like you don't even really get that opportunity to really break into the fact that this was a beautiful place for my parents to grow up, that despite, you know, the systemic challenges and the institutional issues, war, poverty, my parents, they both got the opportunity to go back. My dad went back in 2016. My mom went back at the end of 2019. And every, every time they talk about that time, tears well up in their eyes because they enjoyed it so much. They loved being around family. They loved being around their community, opposed to being the only only ex person in whatever place they were. They were just at home, filled with that language, that food, that music, in a way that was just so all encompassing. They they felt like just on solid ground for the first time in a long time for them. A lot of the time, I'm trying to, you know, I I, I feel obligated to share the hardship. Because that kind of, sh- it shapes how I came here. It shapes why I work so hard and why my parents push me so hard. But it's not the full story. I, I actually love that justification. That's such an interesting, I haven't thought about that. I think maybe partly why I would share that more as well is because I'm trying to ju- justify why I'm here and why I want to do the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Actually, when we talked about storytelling, I wanted to read you a little um, thing. I was watching your 2019 video and you talked about storytelling there. And so you said storytelling is an undervalued resource. Stories can empower people in so many ways. When you get to hear stories of people who don't look like you, you get to practice quality allyship. So we have to be mindful who gets to listen and who tell our stories. I talk about storytelling so often because again being in the space of like trying to tell um talking to people and telling their stories but not even telling their stories it's more it's more I guess the whole thing of this is called pass the mic like it's like asking people about their stories so it comes from them and obviously storytelling is a big part of your work and through poetry and writing and how did you get into it what was the I mean there's a long story there's a short story we're gonna go for the long story because we have the time so essentially I had come out of doing an extracurricular program at my school and my my mom had to sit me down and she was like hey I know you're really good at this but this is too expensive and you have to stop and she was like you can find you know do it via YouTube find another way but I I can't keep paying for this realistically so I was like 13 and I was pretty heartbroken but I was like you know what we'll we'll well, we take this. We all make sacrifices. We move. I think that was around term two. Term three rolls around and I'm in English. And my English teacher goes, hey guys, we have some vacancies for the debating team. It's completely free. The girl who was like head of our debate team in year 13 won a competition and it secured our school to have like free entries into the debate program for like the next three years. So they're like, you don't even need to pay. You just need to show up. There's no equipment. We will drive you to and from. No, I think it was like, come around lunchtime if you're interested. And obviously I was like, you know, we just got turned down from what was the dream extracurricular because of money. You know, let's explore this free option. Let's see how it goes. And that kind of started me off. I'll be real. I was very average. (laughs) Nothing super exciting. But as I kept doing it, I started getting better at it. 
And I really started to find my stride when we went into the wider Auckland schools competition. And that's how I met a lot of the friends that I have today and how I kind of got into more of my political advocacy work and got more involved in the community in general, because the minute you start to kind of be able to put words together as a young person, people are very interested and excited to hear what you have to say. It really came all up into that free debate program at my high school that really started me off and kind of led me into this journey. By the end of my high school career, I think I'd done like four years competitive debating. I had like secured the top debater place at my high school and I won a national speech competition with the National Council of Women. And that was really all from that one moment. Wow. Wow. It just shows, I guess, like the opportunities that are available to people, right? And the minute like you lowered that access what can come from it yeah yeah and actually you know like I'm just thinking it would be cool to almost dive into that whole like ethnic identity um conversation through storytelling maybe like what is it I feel like a lot of the times what I resonate personally when I watch a movie or read a book or whatever it's someone describing to me it's almost like reading someone's journal or diary when they talk about their identity and how they maybe figured it out or figuring it out or tackling with it or whatnot and you through that you I at least find whether it's we have very different backgrounds that that struggle that figuring out is so relatable that it's like draws me in identity is the water and I'm just the fish you know it's kind of the everything the all-encompassing when you're coming from such a oh multifaceted identity coming through as a black woman as a black migrant woman former refugee you know, child of refugees. There are so many different elements that come to play when I write, when I try to tell a story, because I carry all of that with me. I do um, a bit of like representation diversity work through storytelling, through presenting stories that have been shared with me, uh, like, you know, corporate spaces, workplaces, uh, universities. And I was talking to a friend about that work and how there are some of us who are like vocal you know, not for like not apologetic, really like kind of saying it as it is. My friend said that she was worried about being just digestible or just uncomfortable enough for the spaces. So people feel good that look, we have, you know, we're listening to this person or look, we're being diverse or whatever. But it's like, I guess that worry is like, man, I think I'm being honest and I'm not pulling my punches, but am I, is my story making an impact? Is my, am I, or am I being tokenized here? How do you find that like for yourself? Because you are open and you are advocating in the spaces. It's a, it's a difficult line to walk, right? Because you want to be, you want to utilize whatever opportunity you have to its fullest. So if you're going to get into that space, you really want to make an impact. But there's also, like there's a voice in the head that tells you if you go too far, they're going to switch off. They're not going to engage with your story anymore. They're literally going to stop listening. So how do you reconcile between giving the full, honest, authentic truth that they need to hear and giving that easy, easy access, digestible, you know, version of the truth that kind of fits in already with their worldview and what they're already doing that's really a bit more uh, congratulatory and allows them to feel, you know, oh, thank God, we're, we're really doing the the work to get people in these spaces. And for me, that always, that conversation really is fueled when I investigate intentions So when I'm entering these spaces, before I enter those spaces, it's really important to see who's already there, the work that's been previously done, and whoever's trying to invite me in. I'm, (laughs) 
I feel like I'm probably one of the uh, most annoying people to have because I email constant. I, you know, we set up a call, we talk about intentions, who's coming into the space, what are the goals with this work? And I'm always a big fan of a feedback loop. As much as I want to go, you know, balls to the wall and really just go in, I, I do find myself holding back because you, you want to make sure that your audience is still connecting with your message and you want to make sure that it's not so far that they can't reach it anymore and it feels a bit too hopeless. You ever hear about conversations about climate change and the climate crisis and hearing people talk about it in a way that's so disastrous, so uh, apocalyptic, where you just kind of disengage and cut off because you're like, well, okay, well, there's nothing to do. Cool, we're going to burn in seven years. Like, not going that far. Keeping it to the point where people can still hold on to what I'm saying, where it's still in their hand and they can still do something with it. It's been really difficult, right? When people want to tone police you, especially especially when I was kind of just starting out with poetry, tone was everything. You know, I, I felt really, oh man, like so deeply connected to all of my work, especially when it was work that was really new or work that I that had really sat closely with me. So there was one particular instance where someone had asked me to speak and they were like, hey, like send through what you have and, and what you wanted to perform. So I sent it through and they sent it back with the note that it was a bit too dark. And it was a, it was about being black. It was about and this is think June 2020. It was a difficult time to be black in New Zealand. And I I wrote from that perspective and I didn't pull any punches and it held the fire that I felt was necessary. And when I got that, uh, that note, I decided to turn that opportunity away because as much as I can accept, you know, people, you know, wanting to tailor their work for an environment and to make sure that the work is appropriate, I think, at the same time, as a person who is a creative, as someone who is passionate about the work that I do, it's also important to just decide where the boundaries are, which was difficult, <laughs> to say the least. I think people don't realize that being in spaces when you're trying to, when you're talking about identity, whether it's race or gender or both or background, ethnicity, all the things, right? That just being in the space is like a mental emotional like labor like it's just every you're constantly thinking okay am I gonna enforce this boundary am I gonna shift it a little bit am I gonna how do I speak here people can understand me and up until probably like a year ago I just didn't realize how I, I, I started requiring so much more rest and space this kind of podcast was a lot about their whole identity but also like New Zealand the called Kiwi identity because you obviously work as well with the, your work with National Refugee Youth Council. When you talk about Kiwi identity, what do you think it is to be a Kiwi, and what is it in your work that comes through? Um, yeah, it's it's really lovely to have this conversation because I feel like my entire life, everyone's been saying that I was a Kiwi, especially from like other. Uh, African migrants like just the way that I talk because I've gone through New Zealand education and I'm just very well settled in formerly West Auckland now I'm out east but personally it was only until like a couple years ago that I was really firm in how much of a Kiwi that I am because it felt like a really 
one, a really exclusive identity to gain access to. And two, because I feel like I get questioned on it by anyone else who isn't in my immediate community. So I can go out almost anywhere and they'll, you know, where are you from? Like, how how long have you been here? And the shock that I say, you coming on 18 years, nearly two decades is palpable. I can always feel it. So there's always that kind of um, that sense that even if I feel like I'm a Kiwi, that's not a shared reality with others. Also being Black, Black Kiwi representation is so far and few between. The grasp for the Black diaspora in New Zealand is to kind of look outwards. So looking at Black Australians, Black people in the UK or Black people in the States as kind of like the shining light to find what it is to be Black outside of Africa. And I think for the longest time, I was like, I want to be Black British because I feel like they're a solid example of what it looks like to be a part of a Black diaspora that's really settled in their white society. They have a niche and neighborhoods and community centers. They've imagined, they're what I imagine New Zealand's going to look like in 50 years with their Black communities, like just very well established and very settled. I've come to the realization that I also like don't want to move. Like I would, if I never left New Zealand permanently, I would be pretty satisfied. And I would really love it if it was a reality that I could find a bigger community of Black Kiwis here that while having a strong connection to the African identity, also really, you know, have have their roots here. I recently read a book, um, Girl, Woman, Woman, Girl, Other. And I loved it so much. And I realized, I think as I was reading that most of the Black representation that we have in the media, even in New Zealand, it's still US representation. And that UK British I guess lens I was like wow like I haven't I've, I haven't seen enough of that and then I thought more I'm like wait in New Zealand we have even fewer tell me about your work with National Refugee Youth Council 2019 was when I was elected president and I was really fortunate fortunate and unfortunate because we did like a six-month shadowing process and the minute it ended we got into COVID so imagine trying to run like a national organization of young people who were just scattered everywhere. We were we were trying to work, do uni, and not get sick. It was a bit of a mess for like the longest time. At that point, I had volunteered for a civics education charity called You and Youth, and I'd done I'd done the hard yards in there. I was really deep into kind of producing educational material, engaging with high school students, and kind of running these events for them to get their feet, learn skills about diplomacy. So transitioning to the Refugee Youth Council was really exciting because one, I was with other refugees, former refugees, children of refugees. So once again, I was just like in my element with my people, as well as the fact that I was really targeting the issues that were kind of impacting people that I knew, which was really cool because I had grown up with people who had struggled with employment and learning English as a second language and healthy eating as like a family and going to these different like ethnic sporting events. And now like I actually had a hand in that work, which was really cool. When we talk about system change or improving the system, whether it comes to, there are so many things, right? There's like racism as a big thing. Then there is the treatment of, let's say, migrants and refugees. You know how you mentioned that sometimes people get overwhelmed when there is like climate change and seven years we're going to die. Big problems, complex, so much. 
and then if I narrow down, if I kind of like go from that and narrow down, some people, some people find a niche when they were like, I'm going to campaign on, let's say, ending conversion therapy, which is a recent thing that came to my mind. And they just spend, you know, a lot of time putting a lot of energy campaigning on this particular issue, particular policy. Where do you feel like you kind of sit maybe? And how would you, yeah, let's, let's start with that. Where do you feel like you sit? Yeah. <laughs> Lucky I was just thinking about this or else I would be staring at you for 20 minutes. I have been really lucky to kind of just decide that I'm a problem solver. And my area that I focus on is equity, diversity, and inclusion, mainly because that captures a lot of my own lived experience. And then applying that to kind of whatever realm I find myself in. I'm really lucky in the work that I'm doing now professionally at Faroda, which is the National Workforce Center of Infant, Child, and Youth Mental Health advocating for youth consumers so young people who use mental health services because I've kind of decided that at this point because there are so many issues there are so many things that we could talk about that whenever I encounter something that kind of tugs on a heartstring that is clearly a problem that needs a solution that's where I go I'm a big big advocate of starting where you are and starting with what you have and that's only because I spend a lot of time thinking I wasn't qualified to talk about things or to do things or to go out and speak to certain people. I would sit there and I'd be like, oh, well, you know, I don't really have that much experience under my belt. I'm only this, I'm only that. And it took like getting into university, meeting the right people, meeting the right mentor that just went, you have 20 years, 19 years of lived experience in this space. That's more than some people's entire career. You are the exact right person who can go and start talking to people, start changing shit. My big issue has been how active, at least how active is my activism on social media platforms, which feels like a weird thing to focus on, but my contemporaries, I feel, are very, very active. And I've just never really taken to social media quite well. I I had an Instagram in high school and then I deleted it then I got it again then I delete like I just don't like having it and I've never been the type of person to like share a bunch of information but looking at people who are my friends who are people who work in the same spaces the way that they utilize their social media platforms is really powerful and something that I really respect so I kind of sit back and I go okay well should I kind of push aside my discomfort of these platforms and just use it anyway to kind of gather to, to, to make a community of people that could be a bit more informed or do I just stick to the work that I do you know outside of this in real life on these independent projects that I work on and I run back between it back and forth because I'm thinking potential impact but then my own personal comfort and I don't know what to do about it there is kind of like if I if I were to connect a thread throughout our conversation there is a lot of the work around like carrying your identities the intersections of them using those as valid work experience or the cv type thing like when people ask like what's your experience here is the my lived my lived stuff and telling stories of that whether it's through poetry or through advocacy or whatever else and kind of bringing that in to spaces that you care about what would you and i know it's really uh, like it's hard to simplify it and say, here is a nice package of what the things that you should think about. But something that particularly maybe in your work that you're maybe trying to, you know, 
get through to people who might not be um, just there yet? When I'm talking to people who I would like to say are on my frequency or who don't have this lived experience to know kind of my perspective on diversity, inclusion, and equity, the conversation I always have is about what's visible and what's invisible. And people who are kind of just starting out, I think, really focus on what's visible. So who's in the room? What are we talking about? Uh, Where is it being held? Those type of things. And those things are really awesome and they matter. But I always like to talk about what's invisible. So what type of barriers exist that you can't see? We're talking about the power dynamics that exist in the room once people get there. And thinking about those invisible things that really have a strong hold on people from marginalized communities and can really prevent authentic, diverse participation from taking place because that's what it all is, right? I love, uh, I, I, I could, you know, I could ask you like one million more questions, but um, I was thinking that I would love to jump into some quickfire stuff actually with you. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you if maybe if anything we discussed, maybe I like haven't asked you a question that you were like, mm, or like something that you wanted to dive a bit deeper. I do have to situate myself and say I am 22 years old. So I'm speaking with the the confidence of someone who has not been battered by capitalism. And I will continue to do so until it fully happens. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I just feel like that situates me really nicely. Oh, can I share my, my hot take? Okay, hot take. My biggest hot take right now, just is that uh, children aren't the future, right? Mainly because, mainly because the future doesn't exist. And I think anytime I'm in a space where an adult hears me speak and goes, yeah, I have no worries for the future now, I think that is negligent. And I think it's rude. How dare you decide to pass off all your responsibilities onto this young... No, I want to... I want to go to the movies and make TikToks. Please make good policy decisions and vote for the right people. Anytime I see like a Forbes 30 under 30 and it's a 15 year old climate change activist, all I think is that her community has failed her. How is it that you've allowed this young woman to take on the burden of, like, it's ridiculous and it's not fair. I think of being young and being black, that is Carrying the trauma of like knowing what it was like to know what happens to black children across the world was awful. Feeling the need to speak on it as a child and try to like educate my classmates was awful. And having teachers commend me and go, you know, like, this is what's going to really make a change. It, it wasn't enough. And I'm very strongly pro-children being children. I love that so much. It's a, oh my God, I love that hot take. It's a, oh, yeah. I love, and I love the, like, yeah, just want to record TikToks. And I I actually find it quite, it's fascinating with marginalized folks as well. And it's something that I see a lot, the whole trailblazing, trailblazer narrative of that, oh my God, look at this young queer woman, or oh my God, look at this, you know, um, migrant, whatever kid. Yeah, and I'm like, I wish we just didn't have to do that. I wish kids could do, or people of marginalized people could just be people and just could run bakery stores without having to advocate for, you know. Let them be painters, but like they just paint flowers. They're not painting like black mothers with no child. There's no space for, I think, 
ethnic um uh marginalized people from marginalized communities to kind of just be mediocre and plain and simple it's always something i think i think that just happens when your existence is entirely politicized that you always feel like you have to speak on something and do something but i just some people sometimes just want to be mediocre i just want to be on netflix without feeling the burdens of not speaking up for my community like even the stuff that you watch or consume can just having to be you know and i mean i and i think we all have to be yeah and we do feel you know like every book i read is always like i'm either watching a genocide documentary in my human rights class or i'm going home and reading a book about domestic violence and reliving my trauma from childhood and like i'm like i also just want to watch shit tv and literally exactly the same thing i think i was reading i was reading a book on like the rwandan genocide and then like my dad sent me a documentary about like the devastation in Congo and I'm like you know what I'm gonna do I want to watch Married at First Sight and I want to not feel bad about not having to like do all of this extra work I think sometimes actually I said it once to someone and and someone said well you don't have to do it I felt like well if we all did a little bit of it then no one had to do it a lot yeah like I don't have to speak on it but it cannot go unspoken that's the thing right it's either I make myself uncomfortable or I'm making these people too comfortable and I refuse refuse to let that silence hang that's it oh okay let's dive into some quick fire stuff well the first one is food something that is just reminds you of like childhood or family or something that you want to like you can lick your fingers after that immediate go-to plantain fried green banana Anytime I can grab it, anytime I grab it. And it, it gets to the point where I don't live at home anymore and my mom will call me if she gets some because she knows that's how I feel. She'll drop it off at my house. Fried green banana has me. Sombe, which is, um, it's chopped up cassava leaves, as many vegetables as you can find, meat bones, usually goat. Sit in a, in like a pot as big as my body, just on the stove for maybe two days. Let it simmer. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Oh, amazing. Where would you, where, where would someone in Auckland can find? Uh, my mother's house. <laughs> Exclusively. I, there was, oh, we were having a conversation how there were zero African restaurants. And I, once again, looking outwards in Canada, there was this uh, uh, Congolese woman who had started this big business and started opening a bunch of restaurants. And I, I literally can't conceptualize getting Congolese food without going through my mom. If you could be the main character in a movie or a TV show, what would it be if you have an idea? Or what would it be about? Existing, insecure on HBO, hands down. Because Issa Rae, one of the things, one of like my uh, big goals was to not consume as much trauma content. And Insecure is perfect if you just wanted to watch like young black women doing their stuff, going through relationships, work, career, and they dress so well. And that's all I can ask of myself is to have a good time with my friends and look fly while doing it. But in my own, I love dystopian thriller, mainly because it it feels, it's gone to the point where dystopian thriller is like really, really uh, close to reality. Um, I want to use my sociological brain and see what I would do if I had the opportunity to kind of build a new society or form new social rituals and social norms in that setting. I It feels like every time I watch something of that genre, they end up just replicating what they knew. 
but now I would turn stuff on its head, you know? Amazing. I love that. I love that. Um, if you could propose one policy to New Zealand Parliament or to like an organization, like a company, what would it be? Oh, okay. So my policy would be that whenever something big and negative happens here, no one from the press, the gov- no one in the higher ups is allowed to say, well, this isn't New Zealand. Because I think one of the biggest issues that we have is that we don't claim our problems. And we treat every big issue, whether it's racism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, like it's imported from somewhere else. You, you can't even begin to go into the solutions phase before you, claim, before you just claim the problem. Okay, well, the last question is, what makes you feel like a badass? Um, I think the beginning of this conversation, when you said you researched me, and the idea that there's enough on me online that I could be researched, I was like, okay, we're not doing too bad. Okay. That always hypes me up. Whenever I like do things, oh, I got, um, I got a grant from Amnesty International to take on a refugee mental health project. That made me feel really, really cool because I think for a while you kind of convince yourself, at least when you start out, that what you're doing is important, but it's important to you. So it doesn't really matter if anybody else is really interested. It's about you and your community and understanding that like an organization as big as Amnesty International was like, yeah, that is cool. We will co-sign you and support you. That made me feel like a badass. I felt pretty cool. Pretty fucking cool. Vera, thank you so much. It was honestly like such a amazing conversation to have on Tuesday evening. Yeah. Very first podcast episode ever in the books. Done. And that was Vera. Thank you everyone for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in this series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio, and Sportway Takati. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund, and to New Zealand On Air. Oh,